This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this year-end edition of the program, we bring you highlights from 2021. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. On January 20, 2021, Democrat Joseph R. Biden Jr. was sworn in as the 46th President of the United States of America. The will of the people has been heard, and the will of the people has been heeded. We've learned again that democracy is precious, democracy is fragile, and at this hour, my friends, Democracy has prevailed. President Joe Biden speaking at his inauguration. Francis E. Lee, professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton University, and Elaine K. Mark, senior fellow at the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution, were my guests for a January 2020 discussion on this transfer of power. Both guests shared their impressions and thoughts about the inauguration. Well, it was unfortunate that we came to this point in this country where we had to have 25,000 armed guards to hold an inauguration. On the other hand, there were no disturbances. There were no demonstrators. Nobody came at them with guns. Whatever insurrection was waged on January 6th seems to have either fallen apart or gone back to think of something else to do. And there was no attack on the Capitol. Now, that's probably due to the fact that There were so many armed guards there, and it's probably due to the fact that over 100 people have been charged with crimes since then. And I think there were a lot of people on January 6th who somehow thought that they could do this, that because they were doing it at the behest of Donald Trump, that there would be no consequences, and have now discovered that they're under arrest. And sometimes they're under arrest for some very serious federal crimes. So I think the combination of all the soldiers there and the consequences have taken the steam out of this movement, at least for the time being. As to the inauguration itself, frankly, it was beautiful. You know, it was beautifully done. I think because there weren't crowds there, everyone went out of their way to pay special attention to the visuals. And the mall was covered with flags. There were beautiful scenes and programming from the Lincoln Memorial. Frankly, it was quite lovely. And my guess is that between the inauguration and between the very successful Democratic Convention, we may see more and more of these large-scale virtual events in the future. They may be one of the lasting legacies of the pandemic. Let me turn to you, Francis, for your take on both the tone and the substance of this historic event. Thematically, it was very coherent. Everything about the inauguration, all the remarks, beginning with the opening prayer and including the poem recited, focused on the need for unity and the possibility of unity. As the president put it in his address, it doesn't have to be a unity forged around agreement. That wouldn't be unrealistic. Instead, it's a unity forged around mutual respect. Politics doesn't have to be a raging fire. That's a path forward. And Biden, with his long years of experience working in the Senate, a body that functions when it functions at all in a bipartisan manner, knows how to engage in debate with adversaries, a productive debate to advance policy. So certainly out of that experience, you know, he can testify to the possibility of moving ahead on policy despite polarization. On our March 22nd edition, we focused a spotlight on East Asia and the crisis in Myanmar. 
In Burma, also known as Myanmar, the army took power in a coup on February 1st, following a landslide victory for the National League for Democracy, led by Aung San Suu Kyi. My guests were Dean Chang, Senior Research Fellow in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, and Ambassador Kelly Curry, former U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for Global Women's Issues and former U.S. Representative at the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. Mr. Cheng told us what he thought precipitated this coup in this fledgling democracy. Well, from what we can tell, the coup was precipitated because Aung San Suu Kyi won. The opposition obviously wasn't happy with that, accused the election process of being fraudulent, and the military then intervened. The military has intervened repeatedly, of course, in the past. Ambassador Curry has pointed out this is not the first time. This is unfortunately a very rocky process. That is, I think, one of the things that listeners hopefully will keep in mind is not to accept this outcome, but to recognize that the path to democracy, to institutionalizing democracy, to go beyond one man, one vote, one time, is always going to be a rocky one, especially in a place like Myanmar, where there are significant elements of very powerful forces like the military who really don't buy into democracy at all. What we can do, what this administration is doing, is to make very clear to the military authorities, you can claim power, but your head should not rest easy. You will not be able to travel. You will not get investments. By having the Japanese also sounding off, this is not just Washington far away on the other side of the planet saying this. This is key regional players, economic players, who are making clear as well. You do this at your own peril, and the longer this goes on, the worse off you will be. All of this is further complicated, as you know, by the underlying some of the ethnic tensions. Aung San Suu Kyi won the Nobel Peace Prize for her standing up for democracy, and yet she turned around and justified the oppression of the Rohingya minority, which creates all sorts of further complications in terms of it's very hard to say who is wearing a purely white hat and who is wearing a purely black hat. These issues are not new. They are long-standing, deep structural problems that also need to be addressed as we push Myanmar towards restoring democracy. I then asked Ambassador Kelly Curry about the roots of the coup and if we had enough alliances in the region to challenge coup leaders and restore partial democracy in Myanmar. I think that there are opportunities because I think we have to look at what's different this time. And there are some significant differences this time around. The makeup of the coalition that is fighting against the military coup, the kind of mainline pro-democracy movement that's historically been dominated by the majority Bama ethnic nationality, has made extensive efforts over the past month and a half to reach out to ethnic nationalities. And this is happening across all three pillars of the movement, which include not only the protests that are on the streets that are very visible, but also the civil disobedience movement where people are staying home from work and not going into the office. And basically, so many civil servants doing this, causing the governance of the country to shut down in key ways. And this is happening in a multi-ethnic, multi-spatial way that has not historically happened. And then there's the third aspect, which is the kind of shadow government that's being formed, which is also at pains to be very inclusive with ethnic nationalities and do a lot of consultation with ethnic nationalities and to 
acknowledge past failures to address the legitimate grievances of ethnic nationalities who have borne the brunt of the Tatmadaw, the Burmese military's abuses over the past 70 years and have had it much, much worse than the Burmese and the central lowlands. And there seems to be a real recognition this time around of that that's very different. Also, as a result of the past 10 years of a democratic or at least quasi-democratic experiment where there was a lot more freedom, a lot more interconnection to the outside world, you have a generation of people who've grown up since 2010, kids who are in their 20s who are on the streets, they've never really known the hardline deprivation of the prior military regime. They have that issue of rising expectations, which we all know how dangerous that can be for an authoritarian government to have a whole cadre of young people who have rising expectations about freedom, economic growth, and all sorts of expansion of their lives that has now been just brought to a dead halt. So you have that different element going on as well. So I think there's some key differences. The other thing that is different is China and not just China's role in Burma specifically, but China's position in the region, as well as some of the things we were talking about before in terms of what you should see right now is a greater willingness on the part of the United States, Japan, India, South Korea, some of these other countries to stake a position in support of democracy and even within ASEAN, as troubled as ASEAN is, to see China be more isolated in the region in terms of defending the military coup. And this is putting a lot of pressure on China inside Burma, where the young people on the streets are really blaming China for supporting the military coup and are quite angry and very pointedly so. And so China's on the hot seat right now in Burma. So given the kind of great power competition framework that we're supposed to be operating from, you would think there might be an impetus to try to turn up the heat a little bit. Let's force them to choose between their traditional non-interference way of thinking about foreign policy and that trope that they use to avoid getting involved in issues like this and their very substantial interests inside Burma, which are going to be harmed if they choose to go all in with the military coup. That was Ambassador Kelly Curry, former U.S. Ambassador at Large for Global Women's Issues, commenting on the coup in Myanmar. You're listening to the Best of Encounter 2021 on The Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel. Here's a reminder that Encounter is available for free download from our website, voanews.com slash encounter, and from many streaming services, such as Apple Podcasts. We also hope you'll get in touch with us through either Facebook or Twitter at Carol Castiel VOA, or by sending us a good old-fashioned email to encounter at voanews.com. Now let's get back to our program featuring the highlights of Encounter in 2021. In April, President Biden officially announced the drawdown of all 2,500 troops in Afghanistan beginning May 1 and concluding by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the war. However, the Afghan government quickly collapsed on August 15th, allowing the Taliban to seize power in this war-torn nation. The August 29th encounter featured a conversation about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover after 20 years of war. My guests were Ambassador Ronald Newman, former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan and now President of the American Academy of Diplomacy, and Michael Kugelman, Deputy Director of the Asia Program and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center in Washington. 
I asked Ambassador Newman, how did the Biden administration miscalculate the lightning speed of the Taliban takeover and what his reaction was to the widely criticized handling of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and implications of the Taliban takeover? The decision itself is debatable. I am opposed to it, but it's done. The handling has been lamentable. There were three parts in the policy, the withdrawal of troops, the continued support for the Afghan forces and political and economic support. The second part was really key to any kind of success, support for the Afghan forces. We did not do that. We had, you said, poor planning. There was no planning. There was absolutely zero planning for how we would carry out that policy before the president announced it. A lot of people tried very hard in DOD, Defense Department, to find ways to do this. It was insufficient. The shock of the announcement coupled with the incapacity in planning for it reinforced Afghan doubts that went back all the way to the signing of the Doha Agreement and hugely undermined the morale of the Afghan forces and were a major contributing factor to the collapse of the Afghan army. How is it that the Biden administration did not appear to imagine this worst case scenario? whereby Afghan security forces surrendered to or cut deals with Taliban and enabled the Taliban to overrun the country months, if not years, before the U.S. intelligence community had estimated. I can speculate, but I really don't know. I was in Afghanistan just over a month ago. I came back and had an editorial in the Washington Post saying that once the city fighting started, if it didn't hold, it could come apart very quickly to be a very messy evacuation. So I would say from my point of view, this is predictable in terms of Afghan history, where most wars have not ended with climactic battles. They've ended at a point when one side is so clearly winning that folks on the other side quit. But maybe people in the administration didn't do Afghan history. Michael Kugelman of the Wilson Center shared his thoughts on why the United States government didn't foresee the sudden collapse of the Afghan government, which they knew was highly corrupt. Clearly, U.S. officials over the years have known exactly what was going on in the sense that they knew that the Taliban was making continuous gains. Several years ago, the Taliban was seizing territory, including a number of areas relatively close to the provincial capitals that they ended up seizing. So U.S. officials knew that the Taliban was laying the grounds for something big down the road. The U.S. knew that the the Taliban had been able to seize significant numbers of weaponry, much of it from Afghan forces. And U.S. officials also knew that the Taliban was very successful in diversifying its sources of funding. So it was becoming an increasingly wealthy insurgency. So clearly, U.S. officials, and I'm not only talking about the Biden administration, I'm talking about previous administrations as well, knew that the Taliban was becoming increasingly potent. But indeed, I am quite sure there wasn't anyone in the current administration that would have expected the Taliban to actually essentially be given the keys to Kabul even before the U.S. withdrawal had been completed. And I think there one could argue perhaps that there was a significant underestimation on the part of U.S. officials on just how significant the structural weaknesses and deficiencies of the Afghan state were in the sense that you had this ongoing crisis of corruption within the Afghan military forces as well as a very troubling morale crisis, which led many Afghan troops to desert their ranks over the last few years. But I think that there just wasn't a recognition that all of those factors could lead to the extreme outcome. And I think another factor is that we know that U.S. officials over the years of the war have sought to really try to put a positive face on 
very troubling developments. And the Afghanistan papers have made this very clear. The war had become increasingly unpopular in the United States. And in the absence of significant gains or successes on the battlefield, I think that unfortunately, Washington has sought to make things seem better than they actually were. And that could have led to a situation where officials just were not willing to acknowledge in their own minds that you could have worst case scenarios play out down the road. Michael Kugelman from the Wilson Center on the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. In mid-September, the White House announced that Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States would form an alliance that could deliver nuclear-powered submarines to Australia. The purpose of the agreement, called AUKUS, was to deepen diplomatic, security, and defense cooperation in the Indo-Pacific region. The agreement also sank France's own submarine deal with Australia, sparking a rift between Paris and Washington. On our October 3rd program, we featured a conversation on the significance of this powerful new alliance. My guests were Michael Green, Senior Vice President for Asia and Japan Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Corey Shockey, Senior Fellow and Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Corey Shockey discusses the importance of the newly created AUKUS Alliance in containing China. I do think it's significant. It shows the depth of cooperation between Australia and the United States. It anchors Britain in the Pacific, something that the global Britain ideas of post-Brexit Great Britain aimed to do. The three of them will have similar systems so they can capitalize on commonalities on maintenance, and they can do that maintenance forward in the Pacific at the Australian basis. I think it's also important that it reminds China that Australia could become a nuclear power if it chose to. And China's malevolent behavior towards Australia and other countries in the Pacific is actually driving this kind of deepening cooperation between the United States, regional allies, and even folding European allies in. So I think those were really important messages, in addition to the operational value of more submarines, policing Western interests, and ensuring freedom of the seas in the Pacific. Michael Green also shared his thoughts. The geopolitical significance, locking global Britain more in the Indo-Pacific, and operationally creating a whole new set of undersea capabilities at a time when the PLA, the People's Liberation Army Navy, the Chinese military, is expanding, is seeking to establish submarine bases in Vanuatu, in Australia's backyard, to control choke points in the sea lanes around Australia and Japan and India. And this considerably shifts that equation and complicates Chinese planning, which we need to do. We have tried engagement with China for a long time. I don't think any one of these three countries is giving up on engagement or talking about complete containment or decoupling. But we have to have more muscle because of what we're seeing with Xi Jinping. The other thing that shows you is Britain, Australia, and the United States do not think this is a short-term problem with China. These submarines will take 20 years to build, and the capability will last well into China's 100th year as a communist party-led power in 1949 to 2049. This is a long-term investment, which shows you that all three countries think this is not a temporary problem with Xi Jinping. This is a long-term strategic competition in which we have to prevail without catastrophe, without war, by reinforcing deterrence and a more stable equilibrium. And there will be some ripple 
effects every time you start any kind of new security cooperation with any country. There are those who felt left out. In this case, France, of course, because it's losing a major deal in Australia. A little bit Canada and New Zealand, who are also in the Five Eyes intelligence sharing and aren't in this. But in general, in the Pacific in particular, what I'm hearing from senior officials in Japan, in India, in Vietnam and elsewhere is this is a welcome development. That was Michael Green speaking about the new Australia-UK-US alliance. On October 25th, the Sudanese military, led by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, launched a coup d'etat, disrupting the carefully orchestrated transition to democracy in Khartoum. I spoke with Cameron Hudson, non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and former chief of staff of the UN envoy to Sudan, and Sudanese journalist Ismail Kushkush, about the coup, a devastating setback to the fledgling democracy whose people rose up in 2019 and forced the ouster of longtime dictator Omar al-Bashir. I asked Kushkush what he thought were the main drivers behind the military takeover. From day one, from the fall of Bashir, I think in the mind of many Sudanese, the question was, can Sudan be able to transfer itself into a democracy, given the experiences of other uprisings or revolutions in the region, with some of the same forces that were involved in aborting the successes of pro-democracy movements in the region, would they also be involved in doing the same thing in Sudan? In some sense, this was always in the back of the mind of most Sudanese. There are a number of other issues also. I think the issue of accountability and justice. Members of the military council who are part of the partnership government are allegedly involved in crimes that have taken place in Sudan, whether it be the war in Darfur or in the Nuba Mountains, and most notably the June 3rd massacre in 2019 that saw the death of over 120 people that were sitting in front of the army headquarters. Where that was going, what were the results of the investigations that have not been made public yet. I think that has also been in the minds of the members of the military. The possibility or the likelihood of surrendering Bashir to the ICC and other names, that has also been in the mind of the members of the military. There's also the question of authority, power, and wealth. One of the challenges of dismantling the power of the former government through a committee, the removal of the Empowerment Commission, was to also look into the economic wealth and authority of companies tied to the military. It is interesting that one of the first decisions of this coup was to dismiss that committee that had been calling for the surrender of companies tied to the military. So I think that also was a part of the decision with not many options left. It has to be said that the protests that came out on October 21st, on the anniversary of the 1964 revolution, which many Sudanese take pride in as being the first popular uprising in the region to remove a military government. I think even for those of us who followed Sudan for a long time, to see those large numbers despite the fear of the response of the military, despite the pandemic, those numbers were so large. I mean, even colleagues that I've seen say that the October 21st protests were much larger even than some of the protests that we saw in 2019. I think that 
really was a signal to the military that they had very few options left. That was Sudanese journalist Ismail Kushkush. On the same program, Cameron Hudson shared his reaction to the popular pushback against the coup and whether the people can defeat the military takeover. You know, one of the things that's worth looking at is going back to 2018, 2019, when these protests were just emerging. The Trump administration was not terribly engaged in Sudan. They were not advancing a democracy agenda really anywhere in the world. And so as these protests were taking root, there was very little U.S. involvement in supporting them. And so I think that's one of the things that made the revolution so successful because it was homegrown. It was very much owned by the Sudanese people themselves. It wasn't seen as having been manipulated by Western or outside powers. So I would just say that the Sudanese have come up in the last two years very much owning this revolution on their own, not expecting and not looking for outside support. Yes, the support has come in trying to keep a political agreement in place and keep an agreement between civilians and the military in place. But with respect to the protest movement itself, I think that the Sudanese are very much in charge of their own destiny when it comes to this. We're not seeing a lot of support going into the protesters right now, and they're doing really just very fine on their own. So I think that when I look at what does the future hold, I think the big question remains, can this protest movement hold? Can they sustain themselves through general strikes, through being fired upon by the military? What are the prospects? Because I think that the military is going to have a very difficult time, much more so than any kind of sanctions or external pressure that can be brought to bear on them. I think it is the internal pressure that is the big deciding factor in all of this right now. And I think if we can help in any way, so much the better. But I think that the Sudanese have shown that they are really pushing this agenda on their own. And it doesn't matter what support they're getting from the outside. They're in charge of their own destiny right now. And that's Encounters Look Back at 2021. I'm Carol Castiel. From all of us at the Current Affairs Programming Desk, here's wishing you all a very healthy and happy new year.